0: Well, there's no more critical uh, – n- n- no one is a more uh, incisive critic of the press than a reporter or a journalist. <laughs> uh, you know, w- we can we can see the sausage being made, and, uh, you know, I learned very early on not to really accept people's own versions of what they've written, but to go back and read what they've written because, you know, they always make themselves, and I'm sure I do too, seem more sage um, and wise – than they really are, since we're all riding off the bump, so to speak.
1: I think that happens in politics a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just a little.
1: This is Wally Knox. Welcome to the Political Conversation. Not long ago, an article in the Los Angeles Times caught my eye because of its title, America is not facing a civil war, just loud-mouthed extremists. Its author, Michael Hiltzik, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's been the author of seven books spanning topics as various as the story of a murder in Kenya to a history of the New Deal, and most recently, Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America, which is now an Amazon bestseller. Michael wrote his column to refute an article published by the Brookings Institute, which had the deliberately provocative title, Is the U.S. Headed for Another Civil War?, and touted the idea that the increasing tensions in a completely polarized American electorate could lead us to open warfare. I invited him to be a guest on the political conversation to hear his views at length. Well, let me get to why I reached out to you. And that is that uh, I was reading your column one day and the headline was not the expected one. And the headline was, America is not facing a civil war, only loudmouthed extremists. And uh, I, I devoured it and uh, read your arguments. What, tell me about that article. Tell me what why you wrote that article.
0: Well, I, I was... Um triggered, uh, so to speak, to write it um, in the aftermath of the recall election here in California, uh, where – I mean, one observation that I've always had about coverage of California is that journalists who come into the state from other states, from from outside the state, invariably get it wrong. And, um, and, you know, I've said that – you know, I've been reading other – Journalist reports about California, and you know, for forty years, really, and I've yet to read an article that describes a place I recognize. Um, and the it, it, it was clear from the uh, outset that coverage of the recall was getting everything wrong. Um, I mean, the you know, East Coast news organizations were fascinated by Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, she, you know, she would appear on the Today Show or on the, you know, on CNN, um, and we knew watching her in California that she was a non-entity, that this was just not gonna happen, that she wasn't even serious about this. And then as the process went on, um, the coverage got shallower and, and shallower. And then in the aftermath uh, of the vote, in w- which, um, as you may recall, um, Gavin Newsom, the governor, basically won with almost the exact landslide that he had won election three years earlier. Yeah, so uh, the,
1: the percentages are spookily similar. It's amazing,
0: right? Um, and uh, you know, and I,
1: and, and huge, uh,
0: and and huge. Yes, I mean it was it, it was a blowout, um, and there were you know reasons for that that we understand here because we watched it happen. That I think were lost on a lot of outside commentators. And, uh, and I re- remembered, I, you know, I was reading a lot of articles and I won't, you know, pinpoint any particular uh, 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 offenders, um, although I, I think I, I went into it in the piece where there was talk about how, uh, you know, this outcome proved that um, California was deeply polarized and that the country was deeply polarized. And, and and I'd been, this was a term that always got under my skin because I would look at uh, opinion polls and I would see that, in fact, uh, a lot of the issues about which Americans were supposedly polarized were issues on which there was really a, an overwhelming uh, uh, group in favor on one side or the other, um, uh 70 eighty percent of the public wanted tighter gun control uh, 60 70 80 percent of the public is in favor of uh, abortion rights um, uh, you know 60 or 70 percent now i think are in favor of uh, you know vaccine mandates or at least you know tough tough rules on COVID vaccines and and what have you. And to me, that's not a polarized electorate. That's really an electorate that's come together on on one side, and in most cases, the right side. You know, uh, uh, you know gay marriage was another one where, oh, America's polarized. Well, no, uh, you know, most of America is in favor. And then, you know, so after this recall election, I was reading about how California was polarized. And my argument is, polarized is when you're at fifty-fifty, where and and where there doesn't seem to be uh, a common ground that everybody can uh, can come together on. Uh, but but sixty-forty, not only is that not polarized, uh, I mean that's you know certainly a symbol of uh, of an accord in the electorate. And not only that, as I, as I knew because I had looked up these figures over and over again. Sixty forty is basically where America it almost always is. Um, that that if you look at uh, the popular vote uh, in presidential elections, I think going back to the dawn of the twentieth century, you find that they're always that these the popular vote coalesces around a sixty forty uh, majority. Uh, you know, within a few points all the time, and that even. Famous landslides, Uh, Roosevelt over Elf Landon, um, Roosevelt over Hoover, were in the 60-40 range. And the biggest margin, uh, the biggest gap in the popular vote in a presidential election in modern times was Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater. And and that was the largest, Johnson won the largest share of the popular vote of anyone going back to the 19-teens, I think. And what he ended up with was 61.5%. Uh, so that's America, you know, and the, the battle is always over that middle um, uh, 20% of the electorate. So there's nothing new. And to say that the recall somehow signified a, a polarized electorate just seemed to me to be wrong. Um, but But what we do have, is an electorate where the majority is on one side and a very vocal, um, agitated minority is on the other. And we tend to think of that minority as bigger because it's louder. Uh, And in fact, uh, if we really look at the numbers, it's not not that significant. I mean, you know, Fox News has a huge audience, but if that audience and the audience tends to vote single-mindedly, but it's still not enough to win a presidential election all by itself. So so I think there's this, this overestimate of where American politics is.
1: Yeah, I think if uh, if I remember correctly, if you look at the cable news networks in general, they all uh, are enormously successful businesses, not because they have 20, 30 percent uh, viewership, but because they have a viewership of three or four or maybe five million Americans who will follow the most popular stars. And that's it. And then uh, you'd compare that to uh, CBS News Hour, and uh, the figures there are four or five times as large. So the the cable news networks that, that drive so much of the acrimony have an audience, and it's big enough to build an entire business around, um, but it's nowhere near the dimension it feels like.
0: That's right, and the, the, the danger there is that uh, our political parties, or the Democrats in particular, um, th- 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 their strategy and tactics are aimed, at, are basically based on the notion that there's this huge gang out there that opposes them, and thus, and, and I think that accounts for the the timidity with which they they basically um, push their 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 platform, and and I think that's a real error of judgment and uh, and dangerous, and I think we've seen that. Uh, You know, we're talking, you know, just after the the November 2021 election. I think, you know, I'm afraid the Democrats are going to take the wrong lesson from the results there as well.
1: And do you see that lesson as that that wrong lesson as?
0: Well, I I think, you know, in fact, I wrote a column, you know, just after the Virginia uh, and other results results. became clear, in which I said that the the right lesson that the Democrats should take is that they should double down on the, the program that they've put forth that's of great assistance to the middle class and the working class and the poor. And if you look at the opinion polls, uh, 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans favor the elements of the Build Back Better program that's been put forth by uh, President Biden. And my argument is the, the Democrats' problem is that they didn't communicate and still haven't what's in that program and why it's good and why it will help people. And they shouldn't be running away from it. The, the, the point I actually made in the column was that there's a, there's a real difference. There's a tension, permanent tension between putting together a program that helps ordinary Americans, and then and also doing electoral mechanics. And the Democrats have been good at the first, going back to the Affordable Care Act in 2010, and really incompetent at the second. And I think that's why the, the election this time around came out so badly for them, because Sometimes this is talk, talked about as messaging that the Democrats are bad at messaging, and they are, and they need to get much better than that. And um, in my, in my column, the uh, the politician I I pointed to as the, the historical champion of messaging is Franklin Roosevelt, who was never, never shy about making sure that his listeners and his voters knew what he had done for them and what was at stake if uh, if his opponents won. And he would treat the Republicans of his era or the opponents of his era at, uh, with ridicule and sarcasm. And, that, and he was very good at that. But he would make sure, you know, he would give a speech. There was one speech in September 1936 when he was about to start running for re-election, in which he he basically ridiculed the Republicans and said, look, you know, they say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. And we know they won't. But he listed one by one all of the programs that he had enacted, starting with Social Security, to make sure that his listeners knew this was what it was all about. And today's Democrats are, are just awful at, at that. And they need to get it right. Pronto, because another election's coming at coming up.
1: So, do you see some connection between that failure within the Democratic Party, as you see it, and the uh, the idea that the country is polarized? Is there a link there?
0: Yeah, I, I think the, the the Democrats seem to have bought into this idea that the the. Country is polarized, and and that's why they're afraid sometimes of setting forth what they've done. And, and it goes back, you know, it was Obamacare, I think, you know, that really brought this home. Uh, they enacted uh, a revolutionary reform in American in the American healthcare system in 2010. Uh, it uh, it was a product of compromise, so it didn't have everything everybody wanted, but it was a major advance in terms of customer protection and uh and the expansion of access to coverage. Uh they enacted it in 2010 and immediately started running away from it. They were afraid of it. And that was both the product and the cause of the fact that they allowed the Republicans to define it for people. So you would the Republicans would go about and say this is a disaster, it won't work, it's too expensive, it's this and that. It's not going to help anybody. It's going to hurt. People and the Democrats just did not have the gumption to counter that. Um, in part, it's a little difficult because it's always easier to produce a soundbite that's negative than it is to produce a, a soundbite or an argument that's necessarily nuanced and uh, and and deals with a complicated issue as like health care. It's easier to say. Well, this healthcare thing won't work, and harder to say. Well, it will work, and this is how. Uh, now, the the hardest of that failure by the Democrats, you know, after enacting the ACA, was the twenty fourteen election when they lost. Uh, they, you know, they they, uh, they lost the Senate. Uh, they ended up with a smaller minority in the House, um, and uh, and and it was quite consequential. So. But obviously, in the twenty twenty ten election, the, 2014,
1: the sorry, twenty fourteen, I'm sorry, there were two,
0: right, right. The 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 midterm yeah. elections in twenty twelve were okay for the Democrats. The twenty fourteen election, Obama won, but the uh, the congressional elections were disastrous for the Democrats. Yeah. and and Obamacare I, was still an issue at the time.
1: Yeah. So here's the, one of the, the big question I just wanted to pick your brain on. If the country is not polarized, and I agree with you, Michael, that we are not, I don't agree with some of the details of, of what you're thinking, but I, I really fundamentally agree with you that uh, our country has not polarized. Why? <laughs> Why is this mythology so prevalent? Uh, and so persuasive to Democratic leaders who shy away from saying what they're for?
0: Well, well, you know, to be uncharitable, at one level, I think, and I've, I've seen this for years, for decades, really, is I think Democrats and Democratic leaders are really afraid that their voters are stupid. And that their voters are really vulnerable to the, you know, to the quick hit, soundbite attacks that they get from Republicans, and they're so, and that makes them shy, gun shy, really about coming back at Republicans. Um, um, it, you know, look in this last election, Terry McAuliffe should have called out Youngkin for the, the openly racist themes of his election he didn't do that until i think virtually the last day of a campaign
1: which is worthless uh yeah. right
0: which you know didn't register um but i also i blame the press um basically um political reporters and you know i have you know i i don't expose my disdain for political reporters as a class but um but, but I have seen this, uh, you know, I write about Social Security, I read about Medicare, I've written a lot about the Affordable Care Act, um, and I just see so much misinformation being sort of internalized by the political reporting class, because they're not really interested in details of policy. They're interested in picturing everything as a horse race, or as a contest among uh, armed camps, basically. And they do that, I think, and once again, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think they do that because that's easiest. And it's hardest to be uh, judged wrong when what you're doing is just partisan prognosticating. Um, Political reporters are never afraid of being wrong because they can always say, well, Things change, they always change, but getting down into the weeds of how social security works and how Medicare works and certainly how the Affordable Care Act works is hard work. Uh, you need to educate yourself if you 're writing about social security as i 've done for for years you, ha- you you have to know about the you know the history of social insurance, you have to be familiar with the debate that took place in Congress in 1935 uh, and why social security ended up being structured this way. And it's all there. The uh, the transcripts of the hearings in Congress are all public. And I've got them all on my computer because I've written now two books about it. Um, but it's hard and, uh, you know, and superficially it's boring, but it's not boring and it's it's important. So they don't do that. And I think, uh, that's why it's always easier to say, well, you know, the country is is polarized. And one other aspect is that um, that the Fox News audience, and in fact the uh, the, the conservative or reactionary or right wing audience, is more homogeneous than everybody else. That if you're a Democrat. You know, Will Rogers said, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, because the Democrats really do encompass a wide range of political and social movements and viewpoints. Uh, the Republicans certainly in, in this day and age don't. It's all, they, they move in lockstep. And that's why there's this image that the Fox News audience is this juggernaut. Um, because it because at all you know they they think and they hear the same thing and they react the same way so they look more powerful than i think they are and they will be more powerful as long as the democrats treat them that way and they shouldn't
1: so are you speculating that uh, there'll be a retreat from by the democrats following the november election which went pretty darn poorly
0: Well, I'd be concerned that they will. I'd be concerned that they're going to be more timid about uh, uh, making sure that the Build Back Better program has everything it it can have. And we've seen, uh, you know, in the column that I wrote after this election, I went through, there was a a tracking poll that Politico and uh, Morning Consult did that came out really just in the last, day uh, before the election that went through all of the provisions of Build Back Better and asked 2,000 respondents to say, you know, do you support, do you oppose? Um, And, you know, when you break it down by provision, you know, everyone gets a a super majority of support. Uh, You know, the the, the sample of the poll was basically 50-50 Republicans self-described Republicans and self-described Democrats, but they were all, you know, in some uh, 70 or 80% in favor of pre-K, uh, universal pre-K education, of, uh, uh, of medical and family leave for 12 weeks or more, of the child tax credit, uh, of um, Medicare Uh, negotiating for lower uh, prescription prices, of expanding the Affordable Care Act subsidies, all these things that are really crucial, Uh, you know, the the grants for utilities to increase uh, their green component, their renewable components of electrical generation, all these things, many of which, you know, free community college, many of which have already been dropped from the Build Back Better plan to make it cheaper. But some of the things that have been dropped are some of the most popular or or best supported provisions, and we may see more of that if the Democrats think they need to cut it back even further to pass it or to win support. And I just think that's going to be a dreadful mistake. They should double down on it, and they should be aggressive about it, and aggressive about communicating what they're all about.
1: Well, let me, let me test that idea, Michael, if, if I may push back just a bit in, in a couple different ways. Um, there are very different kinds of polls that can ask people their views on public policies. And uh, the morning consult poll you were describing asked people essentially, do you like these ideas one by one by one by one? And the answers came back, yep. I like that one. I like that one. I also like that one. And that one over there, I like that one too. That's very different than asking people, here are 25 different proposals. What's your priority? What are your top two or top three? What would you put aside in deference to a real priority? And in my mind, I've always felt that the priority question was extremely important. Um, simply because it's so difficult to get, it's difficult to get work done in the national legislature or a state legislature. And I hearken back to your hero and my hero, Franklin Roosevelt. I don't recall Roosevelt laying out the entire New Deal in his first two years in office, uh, despite the fact that he took office with massive Massive support in Congress, uh, and at this moment, Joe Biden is elected president with uh, a very narrow personal mandate. His, 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 you know, his total, his total vote, even though it was substantial, was nowhere near the dimensions of a landslide. His electoral college vote was paper thin. Democrats lost a whole slew of seats in the house and today on a good day have a five vote margin and on a bad day a three vote margin and we all know what's happening in the senate which is just 50 50 and a really tough thing to solve so let me just push back for a second
0: well i i think it it it... Now, Every, go ahead. Everything you've said, I agree with. <laughs> everything you've said <laughs> is, okay. is right. I mean, I would make uh, one observation. As you may know, I wrote a, a history of the New Deal.
1: I, I know that very
0: well, yeah. Um, and what I learned from writing that book was that the New Deal um, was, from start to finish, always a work in progress. And Roosevelt, he, he had some general principles in mind, all along, but he he did not have programmatic ideas in mind, uh, you know, from the start. He picked them up as he needed them, and as he said in the famous Oglethorpe University speech, we're going to try everything, and if something doesn't work, we're going to set it aside and try something else. And you can see that, you can see the evolution of these programs, and to
1: his credit, and to his credit, he he stuck his, to his guns on that. He literally would have been a pro, uh, proposed in his first two years very, very massive pro- programs and dropped them and moved on, which which takes enormous courage in both directions. Right, and
0: the, the, the real the characteristic of of FDR that I think is most important is that he was pragmatic. Um, and, and that's why, you know, if he saw something not working, he would, he would move on. And in fact, the new deal, uh, you know, as I, as I wrote in that book, it's viewed as sort of a, a beacon of progressive political thought, but it was really a melange of liberal and conservative, uh, programs. You you know, the, the, the first thing that, that got passed in the hundred days was the banking act, which basically reopened the bank's as a sounder industry then, than when he took office when the banks were all going out of business and closing their doors. But the very second measure that got passed in 100 days was the Economy Act, in which he cut pay for federal employees. He laid off federal employees. He canceled the bonus for World War One veterans. You know, it, it, it was really indistinguishable from a very conservative, program and it was the product of Lou Douglas who was his first budget chief who was a conservative Democrat from Arizona um, but that just shows you that uh, you know you couldn't stand there on uh, March 4th 1936 and see what was going to emerge between then and 1937 38 39 because conditions changed and he could see what worked and what didn't work and some programs we can look back on even today and say, "Well, they never worked, but then, of course, there's social security which which is the greatest program ever um, but so so there is that, and it is absolutely true that Biden has you know this razor thin majority, and in fact in many ways not a majority at all, although Roosevelt you know when he came into office, he had you know the whole country in Congress was so terrified of what they were facing with the emerging depression, that they would follow him anywhere. But they stopped following fairly quickly, and the Republicans started pushing back on spending really before the end of that first year, um, and, um, and and obviously started fighting him right away. And, and let's not forget that the, the stiffest opposition to the New Deal came not from Republicans, but from Southern Democrats. Those were his real foes. But anyway, so there is that, um, uh, you know, in terms of people voicing their priorities, you are right um, that when they're asked one by one, when they're asked to specify their priorities, um, things look a little bit different. And in fact, in this poll that I cited, there is a whole section of priorities. What's your, you know, uh, rank all of these provisions according to whether they're number 1 or number 2 and none of them gets if, if i remember looking at it none of them gets even 40% um uh so you know may, maybe some of the most popular get 36 38% and some of the less popular get 14 15% in terms of this is my priority but but on the other hand we don't present these omnibus programs as though you know, we're going to vote on each one separately and one by one. We vote on them together. And I go back again to Obamacare. Um, uh, the the very first column that I wrote about it was a column that was in uh, on October first, 2013, which was just at the very moment that the individual exchange program plans were being rolled out, and it was messy rollout of if you remember, but this was just as I was beginning it.
1: Very messy role.
0: Right. Huh? Although the mess sort of got cleared up fairly smartly, but in any event, yeah. uh, the the first column I wrote what, said Americans love Obamacare. And this mm. was at a time when it was getting slated mm-hmm. you know, left and right. But, w- but what I explained was that if, if you look at the polls and go one by one of the provisions, um, No, uh, you know, no exclusions for pre-existing conditions, Um, letting um, kids stay on their parents' uh, policies until the age of 26, Um, closing the Medicare prescription drug donut hole, all these things one by one. And they would all get 60, 70, 80 percent favorable responses. Uh, and then the last question would be, what do you think about Obamacare? And it would be 30%. You know? <laughs> uh, and, you know, and that goes, you know, that's the same problem that we have now, uh, which I've also written about, which is that most people, or a large number of Americans, don't even know what's in Build Back Better. And there's a question on this, in this poll saying, how much do you know about it? And, and the answer is not much. Once again, it's, messaging, and people didn't know what was in Obamacare. So when they were told, what do you think about Obamacare, they sort of defaulted to this Republican theme and said, we hate it. But when they said, well, you know, do you want to be back in the world where you cannot get insurance because you're a woman, or you, you're a woman of childbearing age, or you, have, you had hay fever 10 years ago? They say no. I don't want to go back to that that world. So you, you know, it's really up to the party, and our political leaders to close the loop. You know, to connect the dots, and eliminate this disconnect, which has been for too long part of our uh, our political culture.
1: Well, when are you going to run? <laughs>
0: You know, I had one of my college roommates ran for Congress as a Democrat in the Houston area and got basically got swamped. Um, in <laughs> fact, he didn't even make it through the pro, through the, the primary because his opponent was a, a former anchor woman, you know, from TV. But, but when it was all over, I said to him, well, you know, did, did you get the bug? Are you going to try this again? And he said, no way. <laughs> He's, he's, he hated the process, you know, asking people for money, uh, you know, trying to tailor his public statements to, uh, you know, to, to to the audience, you know, so. Sheer I'm, delight. Sheer,
1: <laughs> sheer delight. Sheer delight. One of one yeah. the happiest, easiest things a person possibly could do. Right, yeah. I actually think running for public office is, is has some virtues along those lines. It it really forces you to um, think, about what you, think about what you actually believe and think about what the heck he can say about what you actually believe. And uh, it's, it's nice to think that we want uh, public elected officials who just tell it like it is and tell us what they really think. But uh, those folks tend not to get elected a lot of the time. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack. What got you into journalism in the first place?
0: Uh, well, let's see. I've been at the L.A. Times now for, I just uh, passed my 40th anniversary on the staff uh, here. And that means that I've been uh, a professional journalist for almost 50 years. Um, So it's been a wild ride. And in many ways, um, you know, my contemporaries and I talk about how we, we rode the wave of the golden years of American journalism, uh, starting in the 1970s when newspapers were rich um, and the LA Times was really rich. And when I first came for my interviews uh, at the LA Times, the, the editor who was interviewing me said, look, at this place, uh, and he was talking about the, the owners who were the Chandler family at the time, he said, they're either rolling in it or they're really rolling in it. And <laughs> and when they're only just rolling in it they get all they, they get real nervous and they start wanting to cut back but but they they never really do so i got into journalism really uh, as a, a lot of us do which is that I, I didn't have a better idea at the time
1: well i want to thank you for spending time with us and uh sharing your thoughts about where this uh this this whole uh Biden effort is going to go. Uh, I, none of us know at this point, um, but it's going to be very interesting to see how it all works out. And thanks for sharing your views on polarization with us.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, this has been a, a great deal of fun. So um, we don't know. We can just guess. And um, that's, that's part of the fun. So, so Thanks again. It's, this, is, this has really been a joy.
1: I swear on a stack of Bibles or on the Sunday New York Times that I will never report that Americans have different opinions on politics. I will never report that there is a broad spectrum of opinion on a political issue. I will never report that most Americans think one way on an issue and a minority disagrees. Rather, I will always report that Americans are hopelessly polarized on politics. That's what I call the journalist's oath. Michael Hiltzik, with a lifetime of experience reporting for the Los Angeles Times, seems to agree with me. Michael thinks reporters routinely opt for the polarization vocabulary without questioning whether it is valid, and that the press bears major responsibility for the fact that believing we are polarized is now accepted without question. Today, after you listen to this podcast and in the rest of the week, I'll bet you're going to hear commentators over and over explain how polarized we are in America. Do this test. Just stop and think. Did they actually examine the data to see if there were polar opposites going on, with no center in between? no spectrum of opinion whatsoever, just two sides adamantly dug in that completely exhaust every voter in America? Nothing left whatsoever. Is that really what's going on? I want to thank Michael Helsik for being a guest today on The Political Conversation, and I want to thank my producer, Anakumu, for her excellent work. Thanks to you for listening to The Political Conversation. You can always reach me at wally at the political conversation.org. We're now in 2022, another election year in America. There will be a whole lot to discuss, and I look forward to seeing you next time on The Political Conversation.